A warning. This episode features depictions of murder and sexual abuse of children. Caution is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Sometimes it's the smallest details that stick with you long after a moment has passed. The way the sun hung in the sky, the sound of laughter, the smell of their hair as you hugged them goodbye. I don't know why the mind works this way, but when it comes to disappearances, it's often the tiniest glimmers, details and memories that once seemed completely insignificant that end up breaking a case wide open. Even if it takes almost 40 years to make the connection. I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet two young girls who went missing from their local mall in March 1975. Their disappearance mystified four generations of investigators until one spotted something the others missed. Their names are Sheila and Kate Lyon. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. You should know the Lion sisters' disappearance doesn't have a happy ending. But I think it's important that I cover it anyway, for many reasons. Not the least of being, it has an ending. Kate and Sheila's story proves that unsolved missing person cases don't have to run cold. Answers are out there. Persistence pays off. The devil is in the details, as they say, and with enough pressure. Even the most sadistic devils can be coaxed out of hiding. Okay, I'm taking you back to March 25th, 1975. It's right around Easter. Kate and Sheila Lyon are on school break at their home in Kensington, Maryland. They have plans to spend the afternoon at the Wheaton Plaza Mall, which is like the social nucleus of Montgomery County. It's where you go to see and be seen, especially if you're Sheila and Kate's age. Sheila's 12, Kate's 10, 
they're at the age where it's fun to push boundaries. Recently, they've been asking to get their ears pierced, and they've been hanging posters of celebrity teen crushes on their bedroom walls. A lot's changing, but Mary Lyon is allowing her daughters to go to the mall unsupervised as kind of a test. Can she trust them to behave and listen when she says to be home by 4 p.m. in time to get ready for dinner? She hopes so. She has a bowling league to attend. Around 11 a.m., Kate and Sheila grab money from their piggy banks and head out the door. The mall will be decked out for Easter, so they plan to check out the decorations before getting a slice of pizza at the Orange Bowl. Around 2 p.m., their older brother Jay sees them. He's there at the mall with his own friends. He doesn't want to embarrass them though, so he doesn't say hi. He'll see them later for dinner. But by the time the clock strikes four, it's dinner time. Jay's home, but Kate and Sheila aren't. Mary Lyon wakes her husband John from his midday nap. He works late nights as a local DJ and radio personality, but he always eats dinner with the family before heading into the station. Where are the girls, he asks. Mary doesn't know. She's not worried yet, just annoyed. She prepared a hot meal for six people, not four. By 7 p.m., the dishes are washed, dried, and put away. And John and Mary are worried. Maybe they made a mistake. With four active children, it's hard to remember everyone's schedule. Did the girls have a sleepover? Soccer practice? Bowling? Dance? Nothing comes to mind. As panic sets in, Mary and John phone one neighbor after another to see if anyone has seen the girls. Nobody has. So Mary and John go for a drive. Kensington, Maryland is a middle to upper class suburb with something like 2000 residents. There's only so many laps they can do around town. It's small, quaint, safe. At least they thought so. That night, Mary and John report their daughters missing. And the next day, Posters of the girls are plastered around town. Sheila's blonde hair is parted in long pigtails that drape over her shoulders. She's smiling through oval, wire-framed glasses. The posters say she's about five foot two and about 100 pounds. She was last seen wearing a navy blue sweatshirt and corduroy pants that had a slight tear running down the right thigh. Kate's also blonde, but her smile is framed by a short bob with parted bangs. She's four foot eight, roughly 85 pounds, and was last seen wearing a floral t-shirt, bell-bottom jeans, and a bright red jacket. She should be easy to identify because she wears a beaded necklace with her name on it. Officials do everything they can to locate the girls, including calling in the National Guard to scour every inch of a nearby forest. Their efforts become one of the largest missing person investigations ever performed in the DC area. Scuba divers search lakes. Volunteers search vacant lots, rivers, storm sewers. Months pass and officials are still at a loss. Of all of the tips they receive, only a handful are helpful. The two most significant being one, someone reportedly saw a teenager about 5'11", 140 pounds, with acne scars on his left cheek. He was following the girls through the mall that afternoon. 
Police draft a composite sketch based on the description provided and file it in one of their many case folders. And two, multiple witnesses saw a man with salt and pepper hair interviewing children with a tape recorder at the mall that day. He's never identified though, so the papers and police just refer to him as tape recorder man. After ruling out almost every other possibility, investigators determined Kate and Sheila were most likely abducted by a stranger. They compile a short list of potential suspects, mostly made up of known sex offenders, with one name at the very top. Raymond Rudolph Molesky Sr., a convicted sex offender with a history of recruiting teenage boys to lure young girls to his home. He moved a few blocks away from the Lions just a week before the girls vanished. And he bears a striking resemblance to the descriptions of Tape Recorder Man. The problem is, there's no evidence to charge Molesky. There were plenty of people around, so theoretically, someone should have seen or heard something. A scream. A struggle something. But nobody knows what happened to Kate and Sheila after the Wheaton Plaza Mall. There really isn't anything to go on, other than one tip that places the girls 42 miles away, in Manassas, Virginia. About a month after the girls' disappearance, a Virginia man calls police about something strange that happened on his way to work. Around 7.30 a.m., he stops at a red light behind a beige Ford station wagon. In the back seat of the car, he saw what looked like two blonde girls around Sheila and Kate's age. And they appeared to be bound and gagged. He tried to jot down the license plate number, but before he could finish, the driver of the station wagon noticed, drove through the red light, and sped away. he didn't catch what state the plates were from. When investigators run the partial plates, they don't find a match. So besides alerting Virginia authorities, there's not much else they can do. Now, I haven't spoken about the Lyon family much after Kate and Sheila went missing. That's because at a certain point, they shut themselves off to the world, which I totally understand. It's not easy with John's relative fame as a radio DJ, but they do their best to maintain some privacy for their sanity, for their two sons to grow up without the shadow of their missing sisters constantly hanging over them. The Lions never give up though. In fact, Kate and Sheila's brother Jay grows up to become a cop. He's been haunted by the memory of being one of the last people to see his sisters before they vanished and he hopes he can be the one to solve their case. But it doesn't work out that way. In four decades, dozens of Montgomery County police officers come and go from the department. Each new wave cracks open the Lion sister files, but no real progress is made. Until 2013. 38 years after they go missing, Detective Sergeant Chris Homrock is still combing through the Lion sisters' case files. He's been on and off the case for a while, and he's convinced that Ray Molesky abducted them. But there's no hope of getting a confession, 
because Molesky died in prison eight years earlier in 2005. He took whatever secrets he had to the grave. After another evening of burning the midnight oil, Chris calls it quits. He puts his pen down, goes to the bathroom, and when he comes back, a six-page transcript is sitting on his desk. It's an eyewitness testimony made back in 1975 by a man named Lloyd Lee Welch Jr. Chris is certain that it wasn't there before. He looks around. With only a few people left in the office, he wonders, did someone put it there? Did it fall from the sky? Or am I just that tired? He never gets an answer, but inside the transcript are details investigators have spent the past 38 years searching for. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. On April 1st, 1975, about a week after Kate and Sheila Lyon go missing, a teenager named Lloyd Lee Welch Jr. goes to the Wheaton Plaza Mall and tells a security guard a story that Lloyd later tells police. Now, pay attention. The details are important. The day of the Lyon sisters' disappearance, Lloyd was at the Wheaton Plaza Mall with his girlfriend looking for jobs. Like many other witnesses, he saw a man with a tape recorder interviewing children. But Lloyd also saw something the others didn't. He watched a man lead Kate and Sheila away from the mall and into a car, a red Camaro. He also noted that tape recorder man walked with a limp. 38 years after Lloyd makes this statement, Detective Sergeant Chris Homrock stares at the words on the page. He's positive tape recorder man has to be Ray Molesky. Molesky was shot in the leg by police long before the girls disappeared. And he walked with a limp. This is huge. He might be able to finally pin the abduction on Molesky. Even posthumously, it would be a major victory. But Chris stopped short of celebrating. As affirming as it is, there's something strange about Lloyd's account. With Kate and Sheila's disappearance receiving so much attention, Lloyd would have heard about it right away. So why would he wait a week before going to police? To find answers, Chris needs to track down Lloyd. Luckily, it's not hard. Lloyd, who's now 56 years old, has created quite the paper trail since 1975. The latest police records say he's at a Delaware prison, serving time for criminal sexual conduct with a minor. Obviously, this raises red flags. Remember, Ray Molesky had a history of recruiting teenage boys to lure girls to his house. Maybe the reason Lloyd waited so long to go to the police was because he was involved. 
And then Chris remembers. Tape recorder man wasn't the only suspicious person seen in the mall that day. I mentioned earlier, one witness saw a teenage boy, about 5'11", with acne scars on his left cheek. There's a composite sketch of him somewhere in the case files. When Chris digs it out of storage, he's stunned. It looks exactly like a young Lloyd Lee Welch Jr. From here, everything starts to fall into place. Detectives dig into Lloyd's background. They learn that he dropped out of school in the seventh grade. He spent most of his youth on the go, roaming up and down the coast, spending the little money he earned on drugs. His prior rap sheet is filled with charges. Theft, burglary, assault, public drunkenness, you name it. After doing his homework, Chris decides it's time to pay Lloyd a visit in person. So he travels down to Delaware along with fellow Montgomery detective, Dave Davis. When they arrive, the first words out of Lloyd's mouth are, I know why you're here. You're here about those two missing kids. It's the kind of response that sends a chill down my spine. But the good news is, it sounds like Lloyd's going to cooperate. With microphones on, the detectives ask him to recount again what happened the day the Lion sisters disappeared. And this is the story he tells them. He was standing outside of a liquor store, miles away from Wheaton Plaza Mall, when he watched a man shove Kate and Sheila Lyon into the backseat of a black Plymouth and drive away. Immediately after, he calls the police from a phone booth to make a report. It's nothing like Lloyd's original testimony. Back in 1975, he said he was at the mall when he saw a man with a tape recorder and a limp lead the Lion sisters into a red Camaro. Now, memories are imperfect, but this isn't the kind of event you easily forget. Certain details might shift and change with time, but the location that it happened and the make and color of the car, he's either lying now or he was lying then, or both. The detectives keep their cool. They show him some pictures, hoping it will jog his memory. Dave places Ray Molesky's mugshot in front of Lloyd, and he practically screams, that's the guy, right there. There's no hesitation. But when Dave asks if Lloyd's ever been to the Wheaton Plaza Mall, he says, never. So Dave pulls out the contradicting 1975 statement. Lloyd even has his address listed as 4714 Baltimore Avenue, Hyattsville, Maryland, a quick 30-minute drive from the mall. It seems odd he would have never been. Almost immediately, Lloyd changes his tune. He says he must have gotten mixed up. He did a lot of drugs at the time. Maybe he was at the mall that day. And then, no wait, I do remember. I was at the mall. Ray Molesky was there, wearing a suit and holding a briefcase. That's where he put the girls in his car. A car. He doesn't mention a make or model this time. He walks back his story without any remorse or real explanation. Fair warning, this is going to keep happening. Lloyd will keep changing his story and losing track of his own lies. It's frustrating for me to even walk you through everything, and I know the ending, 
I can't imagine what it was like for the detectives who couldn't possibly know whether there was a light at the end of the tunnel. But trust me, there is. Before wrapping up their first interview, Dave asks one last question. What do you think Ray Molesky did to those girls? And before I tell you his reply, I need you to know, it's hard to stomach. He says he thinks Molesky raped, killed, and then burned them. Now, as gruesome as it is, police had suspected that whoever abducted the Lion sisters sexually assaulted and killed them. But burned? Even if Lloyd's a compulsive liar, it's an oddly specific detail to include. Come February 2014, officials give Lloyd a polygraph test. They ask the obvious questions. Did you have anything to do with the Lion sisters' disappearance? Have you ever lied to someone you've loved and trusted? Did you do anything to cause the girl's disappearance at Wheaton Plaza in 1975? His replies are all the same. No, no, of course not. Now, we know that polygraph tests are not the most solid form of evidence, and they're not admissible in court. But the results on the lie detector say deception indicated. And when Lloyd finds out, he panics. He tells police there is something he left out. Back in 1975, he knew Ray Molesky. Well. They used to get high together pretty regularly at Molesky's house. One afternoon, after Kate and Sheila disappeared, Lloyd took a small set of stairs from the back of the house down to Molesky's basement. Inside, he saw the girls locked away in a small back room. They looked drugged. And there were two men inside, sexually assaulting them. Lloyd says he didn't know the men. He ran from the house, returned to the mall, and that's when he invented his original statement about Ray Molesky leading Kate and Sheila into a red Camaro on the day they disappeared. He didn't know what else to say. Now the detectives don't really know what to think. It's enough to charge Lloyd with obstruction of justice. He kept crucial information hidden from police for 38 years. However, if Lloyd's latest story is true, there were other men involved. Dave and Chris wonder, if they keep pulling, can they unravel the full thread? They decide to try, but Lloyd doesn't make it easy. His story keeps changing. Two months after his polygraph, in March 2014, Lloyd basically tells police that the reason he's been lying so much is he's afraid of one of the persons involved. And he's not talking about Ray Molesky. Actually, he says Molesky didn't abduct Kate and Sheila. He didn't play a part at all. Lloyd lied about his involvement, but his cousin, Teddy Welch, did play a role, along with someone else. But Lloyd can't remember the other person's name. Now, Teddy Welch was 11 years old in 1975, nowhere near old enough to orchestrate a kidnapping. He also had not one, but two broken arms at the time. If he'd been with the girls at the mall that day, a witness probably would have noticed. 
So Dave and Chris are ultimately far more interested in the mysterious other person Lloyd said was involved. The one who doesn't have a name. Until July 2014. When, out of the blue, Lloyd miraculously remembers it. It was his Uncle Dickie, who's Teddy's uncle as well. This is very interesting because in 1975, Richard Dickie Welch was a security guard who worked near the mall. Kate and Sheila could have been convinced to follow anyone with a uniform and badge. But once again, Lloyd changes his story. And this time, he implicates himself even further. He says that on the day of the girl's disappearance, he got into the car with his uncle Dickie, his cousin Teddy, and the Lion sisters. After leaving the mall, Uncle Dickie locked the girls in his basement, which sounds exactly like the one Lloyd previously described as Ray Molesky's. And a few days later, Dickie drove Kate and Sheila down to Virginia, near Taylor's Mountain, in his beige Ford station wagon. The detective's ears perk up. It's the same color and make of the car that was spotted in Virginia in April 1975, with two girls bound and gagged in the back seat. In other words, Lloyd could finally be telling the truth. In September 2014, officials traveled down to Virginia looking for evidence of what might have happened to Kate and Sheila Lyon. They're confident they're on the right track, confident enough that the FBI is now involved. Officials have done their homework. They've learned that many members of the Welch family have lived in Virginia for years up on Taylor's Mountain. It's Appalachian country. And for as long as locals can remember, the Welches have been social pariahs comfortable living below the poverty line, quick to violence, and suspicious of authorities. Mounting tensions between the family and police become so problematic that at some point, officials stopped patrolling the mountain altogether. They left the Welches to their own devices, exactly how they liked it. Unfortunately, many of the Welch children reportedly became survivors of sexual and physical abuse. I won't go into any of the stunningly horrific details, but Lloyd and his cousin Teddy were not outliers. Another reminder that sexual violence can be a vicious cycle. People can be both victims and predators. We can try to understand why people are driven to deplorable acts without excusing them. For investigators, finding answers on Taylor's Mountain isn't going to be easy. It's a sprawling, wooded landscape. As one detective, Katie Leggett says, finding any clue will be like finding a needle in a haystack. A month passes without any progress. And then in October, 2014, officials catch a break. One of Lloyd's many cousins, Connie Akers comes forward with a story. Connie remembers Lloyd visiting their house in 1975 with his girlfriend. She says he arrived carrying a green army duffel bag, stuffed to the brim with blood-stained clothes. When Connie asked him about the bag, Lloyd told her it contained beef that he planned to cook. 
but had since gone bad. Later, Lloyd apparently recruited Connie's brother, Henry, to help build a bonfire big enough to destroy the duffel bag and its contents. The fire was reportedly so huge that people living on the mountain still remember it vividly. It raged for days, maybe even a full week. And it apparently filled the area with a disgusting odor that smelled an awful lot like burning hair and flesh. Now, I don't know why this didn't cause more concern at the time. I really don't. But for detectives, Connie's story calls to mind one of Lloyd's earlier statements, that he believed Ray Molesky killed, raped, and burned the girls. And when the police locate and search the plot of land where Connie said the bonfire was, they find their first ever clues. A piece of wire, possibly from Sheila's glasses, a string, maybe from the beaded necklace Kate wore, and bone fragments. Unfortunately, when everything's sent to a forensic lab for testing, the results come back inconclusive. There's not enough DNA to link anything to Kate or Sheila, but it still feels like they're getting closer. So in January, 2015, detectives pay Lloyd Lee Welch Jr. another visit. When they last spoke, Lloyd said that his uncle Dickie drove the girls down to Virginia. He never mentioned a duffel bag or being there himself. He certainly didn't mention a bonfire. So hoping to link him to Connie's testimony, they ask Lloyd if he went to Virginia after the girls were taken. He says, sure, it's a possibility. They ask him what he would have carried his stuff in. And Lloyd says, a green army duffel bag, a heavy one. After the words escape his mouth, Lloyd realizes where this conversation is going. He gets visibly scared. And then he changes his story one more time. His uncle Dickie killed Kate and Sheila, yes. But he had another accomplice, Lloyd's father, Lee who died back in 1998. And Lloyd knows where the girls' bodies are, there in Maryland. Down the street from his Uncle Dickie's house near Kensington, a bridge runs across the Anacostia River. Lloyd and Dickie apparently used to go fishing there pretty frequently. And it's well hidden, especially at night. According to Lloyd, his uncle and his father took Kate and Sheila's bodies there after murdering them. He's sure of it. Now, this could easily be another lie, but Detective Dave Davis doesn't want to take any chances. He drives down to Hyattsville, Maryland, stops at the river Lloyd had mentioned, and it's the opposite of what Lloyd described. No intelligent person would dump a body there. It's out in the open. And the water, it doesn't even look deep enough to fish. It's looking like another wild goose chase. Until Dave looks up and sees something familiar, an address on one of the nearby houses. It's 4714 Baltimore Avenue. Dave's seen the address many times before. It's what Lloyd listed as his home on the statement he gave back in 1975. It's Lee's old home. On a hunch, Dave goes to the house and knocks on the front door. 
He knows it has new occupants, but he doesn't care. He shows them his badge and asks if they'd mind letting him take a look in their basement. They give him the go-ahead. When he heads around to the back of the house, he sees a set of stairs and follows them down into the basement. Inside, it's dark and musty with rusted pipes and mold. Everything's exactly like what Lloyd first described as Ray Molesky's basement. And then Uncle Dickie's. Turns out it was his house, the one his father owned. There are two rooms, one small one in the back with a door that can lock. This is it, Dave thinks. This is where the Lion sisters spent their final days. The next afternoon, Dave sends a forensics team to the house. They scan the back of the room with a blue light and the entire space illuminates. It's clear a staggering amount of blood had been spilled and then cleaned up. After 40 years of searching, Dave and his colleagues have found the crime scene. The blood's conclusively human. Ultimately, there's not enough DNA to link any of it to Sheila or Kate, but it doesn't matter. In May 2015, Dave returns to Delaware and confronts Lloyd with what he found. And Lloyd cracks at the edges. He breaks down and confesses to a new version of events. He was there, in the house, when one of the sisters tried to escape. He's pretty sure it was the younger one, Kate. His father, Lee, broke her neck. Then his uncle placed her body in a duffel bag. Lloyd's not sure what happened to Sheila after that, but he believes she was taken to Virginia and killed. Detectives decide that's the most they'll ever get out of him. So that's as much as we know. That year, Dick Welch is brought in front of a grand jury and questioned. At this point, he's 70 years old. Family members have already come forward to speak out about the history of violent abuse. But under oath, he denies any involvement in the Lion sisters' abductions and murders. Without evidence and without a confession, he's never charged. Two years later, in September 2017, Lloyd Lee Welch Jr. is put on trial in the courthouse in Virginia. Prosecutors choose Virginia and not Maryland because it has a broader definition of what constitutes murder. So even though Lloyd only confessed to assisting in the abduction, a judge can convict him on felony murder charges anyway. And in a death penalty state, prosecutors hope Lloyd will plead guilty, which is what ends up happening. Lloyd Lee Welch Jr. pleads guilty on two counts of felony murder. At the trial, Mary and John Lyons sit behind Lloyd while he receives his sentencing. He never looks in their direction. At 60 years old, Lloyd is sentenced to 48 years in prison. He'll most likely live out the rest of his days in prison. And that's the ending. That's all we know. It was 40 years in the making, and it's not exactly satisfying but at least the Lions have found some justice for their daughters. I imagine it wasn't easy for them to hear about the nightmare Kate and Sheila lived through. I know from experience that answers can hurt just as much as not knowing. And in this case, we still don't have all the answers. There's still a lot we don't know. 
Like, what happened to Kate and Sheila's bodies? What, if anything, happened in Virginia? Who, if anyone else, was involved? When you look at all of Lloyd's stories together, parsing the facts from the mountain of lies and half-truths, you can draw conclusions. You can try to piece together what happened in the weeks after March 25th, 1975. I, for one, don't believe Lloyd acted alone. But without more evidence or confessions from people like Lee and Dickie Welch, there's nothing the law can do. All we can do is appreciate what was accomplished. And as it stands, Kate and Sheila's case proves that at the very least, answers are out there. Persistence can pay off. So who's to say we won't get a second ending sometime soon? Next episode. In 1950, a 21-year-old West Point cadet named Richard Cox signs out for dinner and never returns. His disappearance may still be unsolved, but if certain theories are correct, his story has a happy ending, and you'll never see it coming. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 35 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Disappearances was written by Lori Gottlieb, with writing assistance by Connor Sampson and Allie Wicker, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice. <laughs>